Armed conflict has been raging in Sudan since mid-April, leaving over 500 dead and more than 300,000 displaced. What will become of the Christian population should a full civil war break out? Director of the Center for Religious Freedom, Nina Shea, is here with analysis. Pope Francis visited Hungary last week, making a plea for peace in Ukraine and openness to refugees. How was his visit received? Hungarian ambassador to the Holy See, Edward Habsburg, will tell us and discuss his new book, The Habsburg Way. Finally, what can we learn from some of the great love stories of the Bible? Fox News host Shannon Bream shares her inspiring new book, the love stories of the Bible speak the world over. Begins right now. Now, Raymond Arroyo. A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. If you'd like to comment on tonight's show, send me a tweet. I'm at Raymond Arroyo. Let's get to some news first. Earlier this week, the TikTok account of the Michigan-based Acton Institute was suspended, presumably due to the recent release of Acton's powerful documentary, The Hong Konger, which concerns pro-democracy advocate Jimmy Lai. After much public outcry, the social media giant reversed its suspension halfway. TikTok has restored the Acton Institute's page, but continues to block clips of the Hong Konger film. TikTok CEO denies that the company censored the page on behalf of the Chinese Communist Party. Acton co-founder Father Robert Sirico appeared on The World Over just last week to promote the new film. He says TikTok's suspension of the Acton account is likely to be counterproductive, claiming, quote, truth has a way of interring its undertakers. We'll continue to monitor this story. Armed conflict uh, continues to rage on between two warring generals in Sudan. How will this affect Sudanese Christian minorities if the situation escalates much further? And what of the current state of persecuted Christians in Nigeria? Joining me now to shed light on what's happening in Sudan and Nigeria, senior fellow and director of the Hudson Institute Center for Religious Freedom, Nina Shea. Nina, thanks for joining us. In Sudan, the clashes are between these two generals, one leading the Sudanese armed forces, the other head of a paramilitary group, Rapid Support Forces. In 2019, the generals were united in overthrowing dictator Omar al-Bashir. After that coup, a power-sharing government was formed, and in 2021, General al-Buran, who had become chief of the power-sharing council, dissolved it, declaring that he would instead hold elections in 2023. The current fighting broke out as a result of negotiations breaking down over integrating the two forces intended to uh, restore civilian rule. So far, the battle has seen 100,000 refugees cross borders, and the U.N. is predicting that 800,000 people will look to flee Sudan by the end of the year if this continues. Your thoughts, and do you see this escalating? Uh, Raymond, I do. These are two bad actors. Um, one was the uh, the, the uh, rapid uh, support forces general, Dagallo. He, he was 
uh, on the ground waging genocide against the um, Darfur people that was recognized by the United mm. States government and the Bush administration as genocide. And in uh, he was the, one of the leaders of the Janjaweed, uh, feared Janjaweed militias. The uh, head of the armed forces was a, a big supporter for many years of uh, General Bashir, whom he overthrew, mm -hmm. and uh, was responsible for what I consider, and many others, a genocide against the Christians of South Sudan, which led to the creation of right. South Sudan because the situation was so bad with the over, you know, almost two million Christians killed, five million in exile. So these are very bad actors. Um, they have an animus for Christians. They're not tolerant. Uh, they want to exert control. And this is a fight that's not ideological between them at all. It's a fight over the country's riches. So um, it's a tragedy mm. all around. Right now, it's not particularly targeted at Christians, though uh, we know of three churches that have either been burned or hit by artillery or even raided by these uh, rapid uh, forces. Uh, so uh, Christians are very much at risk. We have saw that, Raymond. Um, uh, I know you've been on Sudan for, you know, 20 years, 30 years ago, and yeah. um, as I have, and we saw what happened there with enslavement, death, um, and trying to eradicate the Christians. We also saw it in, um, in Iraq, in Nineveh, when ISIS invaded, that this is a time of chaos and um, in the Middle East where Christians have uh, been not been very well uh, treated, uh, to say the least, they've been persecuted. Um, this is an opportunity for the bad actors to eradicate what they don't want there in the first place, that is the minority right. Christians. Uh, according to the New York Times this week, uh, the, these two rival generals have agreed to a seven-day truce uh, starting on Thursday, and they'll name representatives for peace talks. Now, this news is according to the Foreign Ministry of Southern Sudan, which has been working with neighboring countries. Do you think peace talks are likely, Nina? Um, well, there could be a lot of pressure put by the international community if it sticks. Um, but um, it, it is, uh, these are not rule of law people, and there is a winner take all mentality. They want the, the gold mm -hmm. mines, they want the, the factories of the country um, for themselves and for their own tribes or their own families. Um, I hope it works. I hope there, you know, there was a pressure put in the past successfully to help break away. South Sudan, which is now, um, Raymond, yeah. it's over 50% or almost 50% Christian. So that's where the minority went when they fled, and plus they were always there, some of them. Um, this is yeah. a very big deal because Khartoum is where the fighting is taking place. That's the capital. There's six to eight million people in that region, and there could be immense human suffering. Wow. Nina, uh, the watchdog groups uh, Open Doors uh, ranks Sudan as the 10th most dangerous country in the world to be Christian. Uh, what does a conflict like this do to an already targeted group of people? Well, they have uh, uh, strict Sharia laws, in, in um, especially blasphemy laws that are um, uh, used to target minorities and to anyone who is um, not consistent with the government line. Um, and then this also creates a bias against 
non-Muslims in the society. So that there is, in addition to government um, repression, in, in some instances, there is um, ho social hostility that's actually fomented by the government. So Christians are extremely vulnerable. They're a tiny minority there now. Um, many mm -hmm. of them have left or been killed um, in, in the last de generation, um, and, and, and they're still fleeing. Um, we're hearing that uh, many of them are fleeing now to the neighboring countries, which are also not, uh, you know, they will be a, a minority there as well and may not be welcome. And we should say there are already about 300,000 displaced people living in Sudan. So how difficult is it to be a Christian there now? I mean, I read somewhere that it's no longer, you know, the death penalty to convert from Islam to Christianity. But uh, it's still a danger—I mean, it's still a dangerous uh, group to be a part of. It is. And, and the ways that they are targeted is by— um, uh, you know, it could be their neighbors. It could be uh, accusations against them for something that they have, you know, as an ulterior motive. They're disadvantaged in the court system. Um, so it's it's extremely dangerous. This is a country that had enslavement um, a generation ago that is just, you know, in the ninth, in the early part of this century, um, in the early mm -hmm. 2000s. Um, there were children being brought by trains, uh, captured from their villages in South Sudan, taken to be slaves in Khartoum. Um, th this is the country where Mariam Ibrahim was chained to the prison floor uh, while she gave birth alone because uh, they accused her of apostasy because she was raised as a Christian by her mother and her father, who abandoned the family, was not a was was a Muslim, and so she was raised as a Christian. And because she married a Christian, she was accused of apostasy, apostasy sentenced to death, and uh, which was commuted uh, for a couple years so that she could have this child. Fortunately, the international community and the Vatican and Pope stepped in and rescued her. And the Pope is asking for prayers again, because I think that the, that the yeah. Catholic Church, at least, is extremely worried. Um, there's already been an attack on the uh, uh, Anglican Church in Khartoum. The Orthodox Church has been hit by a rocket, uh, the Orthodox Cathedral. Um, and then there's a Presbyterian church that was also attacked and, and burned yeah. um, and just in the last, you know, couple of weeks. So um, this Nina, is very worrisome. Given, it's a very volatile, unstable, lawless situation right now. Yeah, I mean, given all of this, I mean, look, the Biden administration couldn't even get, uh, you know, our own citizens out of there. Uh, but what should the U.S. and other nations be doing to help the Sudanese at this point and the people left behind, Americans left behind? Well, I think that the uh, ceasefire is the right idea, and there should be every pressure on on the ceasefire um, to, to make it hold. And in that way, food can come in. I mean, really, the UN. I've heard seen wild ranges of figures of how many people are um, hungry and maybe facing famine, um, and and, it, and so many people displaced because the fighting is taking place in their major capital. Um, a ceasefire would allow that those corridors to open up and 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 deliver some aid and um, mm. and food and alleviate the situation and hopefully have a resolution. Unfortunately, Raymond, it, it looks like one of those um, uh, monsters, really those those two generals, one of them is going to yeah. probably surface as the country's new leader. 
um, at least for an interim. And that would not be good either in the long run for Christians. Now, I want to move on to Nigeria, where we have seen the ongoing persecution of Christians now for over a decade. Uh, a new report by the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom says the Fulani civilians have been subjected to, quote, xenophobic sentiment because, quote, Christian communities often equate Fulani Muslims with Salafi jihadist beliefs because of their Muslim identity. Abuses have led some members of the Fulani communities to arm themselves and conduct reprisal attacks based on ethno-religious identity, uh, with the result being Christian communities across Nigeria are threatened by deadly attacks from vengeful assailants seeking retribution for grievances against Fulani Muslim civilians. Nina, the Fulani have been responsible for a myriad of attacks on Christians. Your reaction to this report? Yeah, it, it really reads like a, a defense brief for the um, the, yeah. the the Fulani's, you know, pr propaganda um, pamphlet for them. It's totally one-sided. I, I don't see any Christian sources whatsoever in there. Um, and we know that the largest persecutor of Christians right now in uh, Nigeria are the uh, are militant Fulani's, not the entire tribe. It's a massive tribe, but it's and it's spread throughout West Africa. But there are militants, and 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 they've been radicalized, and they're coming after uh, Catholic priests um, and Protestant yeah. pastors, houses of worship, their churches. They're burning churches. In the last 14 years, um, according to an article that was published by Vatican News uh, recently. 18,000 uh, churches have been yeah. uh, burned, um, and not all by these Fulani militants, but now they are the most uh, responsible for these attacks. Let me share some of this with the audience. In the month of April alone, there have been reports of 12 Christians being killed by these Fulani herdsmen in central Nigeria. In addition, Fulani herdsmen are responsible for burning a local pastor's house, destroying dozens of homes, and during 11 days of attacks in villages, over five counties, Fulani herdsmen killed 18 people and wounded others, including the pastor of the Church of Christ in Nations Church, who was ambushed, shot, and cut with a machete. He's currently in the hospital. What's the Nigerian government doing about these attacks, Nina? Well, hundreds of these attacks have happened, Raymond. In the last year alone, 5,000, over 5,000 Christians have been murdered uh, in such attacks. The government does nothing. They allow this to occur with impunity. There may be, you know, police that show up after the fact or a few soldiers that make a, a feeble attempt to, to, to fend them off. But there has been no solution, and there's been no protection, and there's been no prosecution. So no one has ever put on trial and, and held accountable for this. So they keep happening. And um, there used to be a caliphate um, in this region, a Fulani caliphate in the 19th century, wow. and in, in north-central uh, Nigeria. And there's a thought that, um, that that's what they're trying to do again, is to recreate this. And they want to cleanse the land of Christians. They want to grab the land, not only for their herds, um, that's their main occupation and their nomadic uh, right. herders, 
but but also to get rid of the Christians and to eradicate them. Yeah. The government does nothing for them. And there is um, unbelievably to me is that there is very little sympathy for the Christians. But, you know, Raymond, we're in a period of history when even members of our Congress are calling Christianity fascism. So it's, um, you know, it's 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 creeped into, I think, uh, some of those uh, in Washington who are spinning the story on on the part of the Fulani and calling them the victims of this massive wow. onslaught. That report that you cited from Youthsurf even says that um, it asserts that um, self-defense by the Christians is um, poisoning this climate of trust between the two. Um, between no, the, the Fulani the, and the is, Christians. Nina, I mean, that's a basic like principle of jurisprudence. Right. No, no, this is like the madness we're seeing in, in our own country, in New York. You know, you've got the, the, this guy punching women in the face on the subways. Uh, men intervene. He dies. God bless him. It's terrible. It happened. But, but suddenly, the offender, the guy who 60 times had run-ins with law enforcement, he's now celebrated as the hero and the martyr. It, it, I, I, none of this makes you sense You know, what, me. what it really report, reminds me of, Raymond, is the scores of uh, pro-life centers who ha which have been firebombed here in this mm. country since uh, last May in one year, hundreds of Catholic churches in the last couple years, and very little prosecutions, like uh, maybe yeah. a handful of prosecutions in those cases, according to our own attorney general before the Senate Judiciary yeah. Committee. That's, he had acknowledged that. Wow. Yeah. And the idea is, well, they deserve it. I mean, that becomes the popular, you know, conception. Well, look, they, they're, they're, they're offending and, and trying to get in the way of a woman's right to choose, so they deserve what they get. It, it, it does cause you to just shake your head. Uh, a recent report entitled Martyred Christians in Nigeria, published by the International Society of Civil Liberties and Rule of Law, a Nigerian-based research and rights group, uh, they claim over 50,000 Christians have been killed since the outbreak of the Boko Haram Islamist insurgency in 2009. And as you mentioned earlier, 18,000 Christian churches, 2,200 Christian schools have been destroyed in the same period. We've already lost 1,000 Nigerian Christians this year alone, and we're not done yet. Why do we not hear more about this? Where is the State Department and the U.N., Nina? The State Department laughably, if it weren't so tragic, um, calls this uh, a, a climate change crisis. And um, there's nothing that can be done. It's climate change. We have to have climate change policies and, and support the government of Nigeria uh, in doing that. Now, the government of Nigeria, by the way, for the last um, number of years, eight years or so, has been um, a Fulani, a son of a Fulani chieftain. And um, he has not, you know, he may see this, this, these people as uh, who are committing these crimes as part of his political base. I'm sure he does. Um, that's where his support has come in from um, in the northern part of Nigeria. So um, it, there has been no political will there to, um, to um, stop this or protect their own civilians, which is the government's number one mm -hmm. responsibility. Um, these Christians who are being attacked um, are mostly farming, rural farming communities across the north and in the central part. And dozens of Catholic priests, Raymond, have been hunted down in their rectories or in their um, churches um, and kidnapped or killed. One uh, Father Achi was killed this year, earlier this year. He was burned alive in his rectory. Hmm. 
No, it, it, it's a global tragedy. The international community should be raising its voice. I'm glad the Pope is lending his voice to it, asking for prayers for the region. The Vatican needs to do more as well. We will leave it there, Nina. You can follow Nina okay. Shea's reporting on the persecution of Christians worldwide by visiting Hudson.org. Thank you, Nina. Thank you, ma'am. On a happier note, and we need a happier note, I had some incredible school visits in Nashville this week. Such great kids, and they, they do restore your, your spirit and your hope in the future. Uh, the Unexpected Light of Thomas Alva Edison is available now in bookstores everywhere online. Uh, it was wonderful sharing it with these kids, but it also makes a great Mother's Day gift, since it reveals how a mother's love and devotion turned her son into the greatest inventor we've ever known. You can still get signed editions at the link on my website from Premier Collectibles. And for you folks in Nashville, Brentwood and Franklin, I expect to see you this weekend at the Cool Springs Barnes & Noble in Brentwood on Saturday, May 6th. All the details are at RaymondArroyo.com. Of course, the book is also available at the EWTN catalog at EWTNRC.com. Pope Francis visited Hungary last week. How was that visit received? And what can we learn about the importance of Catholic values from a family that influenced European history for 800 years? Joining me to discuss is Hungarian ambassador to the Holy See and author of the new book, The Habsburg Way, Seven Rules for Turbulent Times. Would you welcome Edward Habsburg? Thank you for being here. Before we get to the book, I, I, I want to begin with your resume, which I couldn't believe when I read it. You, you have been a zombie movie screenwriter, a novelist, a cartoon producer. This is not the resume of most ambassadors to the Holy See. How is it that you came to be Hungary's ambassador at the Vatican? Funny you should say that. That was the thing I told the Hungarian government when they asked me whether I wanted to be their ambassador to the Holy See. I said. Guys, I wrote a zombie movie. I'm not your diplomat type. Um, but <laughs> I, I, they convinced me to try it. And I arrived and I hit the floor running and learned. And, uh, and it's been the greatest ride of my life. The last eight years around the Holy See um, has been really, you know, I did many different jobs before, as you said just now. But in this job, I can really bring in all of my personality, my interests, and uh, I, I love it. I love it very much. Hmm. Pope Francis was in Hungary this last week. I know you were there as well. Uh, it was among the most beautiful visits of his papacy, I have to say. Um, and, and I was struck by the clarity of so many of the, the messages he, he offered there. How was it received by the people of Hungary, 60 percent of whom are Catholic? Uh, the pope seemed like a different man in Hungary. I think he has been, he has been um, nurturing a great love for Hungary since decades. And um, I, I've seen little signs of that over the last eight years. Um, he told me personally um, that what impression he had of Hungary. But when he arrived, he really be began covering us with, with, with gifts. The Hungarians felt the love of a pastor for his people. He engaged with them. He, he took one bath in the crowd that was absolutely not planned after he was in St. Stephen's uh, Cathedral in the center of Budapest. And there weren't even any, any, 
any measures to keep the people back, and he just took a huge bath in the crowd. He spoke to ten thousands of young people in the stadium, spoke to them about prayer, about confession, about God's forgiveness. He spoke to us politicians and, uh, well, us, us politicians and diplomats, uh, representatives of the state, mm. and you could tell that he felt at home in Hungary. Because what mm. most um, media nowadays probably can't even believe is the Pope and Hungary are very, very close in their positions on far more topics mm. than you would think. Yeah. What was, the, what was the overarching message that you think the people of Hungary took from the visit? I think he, um, he thanked us for standing up for family, for values, for tradition, for Christians all over mm. the world. And they really felt our Pope loves us. And I think that love went back to him. He felt so much at ease. Uh, there is one snapshot of him with our president, Katalin Novak, her with beautiful blue eyes. And, uh, mm -hmm. and they both laugh from all their hearts together. This was the atmosphere. The Pope with, was with his faithful, and the faithful had hmm. their pastor visiting. It was not a political visit. It was a deeply pastoral visit. Now, now um, Edward, if you believe the secular coverage, um, the, the, the headlines were covered with <laughs> the Pope challenging Prime Minister Orban over immigration. But uh, tell us, is that how you interpreted this idea that you have to open the doors um, and uh, reconcile that with the reality of the way Hungary has welcomed Ukrainian refugees into your country. In fact, you're absolutely right, Raymond. I was sitting in the room when the Pope gave that speech. It was a long speech. It was a beautiful speech, I have to say. I was moved to tears once or twice during his speech. And um, he thanked us for what we did uh, for the, Hungari for the uh, Ukrainian refugees. And uh, he praised mm -hmm. the Hungarian government for many things, very outspoken. He made a very strong uh, statement on gender ideology and the dangers of it. You won't mm -hmm. find any trace of that in any article in any of the mainstream media, of course. You, they picked out that one half line from the end of his speech where he said that one should be more welcoming. And he did something very clever. He quoted our King Stephen to us, who spoke about welcoming mm -hmm. strangers. That was very wise and clever of him. But like a good father, he will encourage you where you can do a bit more. And we took it in that spirit. And um, I tell you, at the end of the speech, the entire Hungarian political leadership, Orban, Katalin Novak, and all the ministers, jumped up, and we gave minutes of standing ovation for this speech. So I don't think that the pope mm -hmm. criticized us very harshly. Yeah. What was it like growing up as a Habsburg? I mean, with this family lineage that really spans much of European history, goes back 800 years. Well, um, the first time you realize you're different from other people is in school, when um, the teacher in history class, because, you know, the Habsburgs have, have uh, interacted with European history for, as you said, 800 years, when mm -hmm. the teacher looks at you in front of all the other kids and says, but this is surely something Mr. Habsburg can tell us more about. And you, of course, you, of course, don't know, and you blush furiously. And, uh, and then you decide when you go home, I, I need to know something, because this might happen next week again. So you begin to ask your parents. Mm. And, and then you, and then you yeah. grow into this, into this identity, because it's really like having a little spotlight flying above you. you people will mm. notice more what you do, and people seem to 
expect something of you. They expect a Habsburg to be in a certain way. So the book I wrote was also an answer to this. For what do the Habsburgs stand? And what are those yeah. principles we should live according to? Yeah, and the book is called The Habsburg Way. It's seven rules for turbulent times. Now, what is this Habsburg Way? And why are your family's values so fitting and important today? Well, that was the great discovery I made when I sat down to, to collect the central principles of our family. I realized mm. most of these are gone. I don't see them in everyday life. Mm. I don't see them in politics, most of all. And, um, and then I said, wow, perhaps there is a real message for people in our, in our world, something that they can take home. And so if you think about the Habsburgs, usually the first two associations that people have is Catholic. Um, and family, because the Habsburgs were not yeah. famous for conquests and massacres and gigantic wars, but they mostly made alliances by marrying off their children and, and making friendship between people by marriage. Mm. It's a positive thing. They all have lots of kids, and all of these mm. kids were Catholic. Um, so I would say the message here is have a family. The first, my first rule is basically yeah. get married and have lots of kids. I have six. Um, that's not lots. When I arrived here in the States for my tour, uh, at the first dinner, I met with three families who had more than eight kids and who looked a bit down mm. on my six. So lots of kids. <laughs> and well, this is you, you're right. Your first your first rule here is, you know, get married and have a lot of children. This is not a popular principle or even an operable principle in the West today. Why is getting married, do you think, and having children so important? And why do you think it's fallen out of favor? I think it's the greatest decision you can make. I think it's the greatest gift you can make each other as spouses to have lots of kids and the greatest gift you can make to the children to have lots of siblings. But it also makes sense for a state to encourage this. Hungary, for instance, mm. has a whole series of measures to encourage families to have more children because a state with numerous families is a state that will be built upon compassion, upon love for, for the neighbor, and not upon egotism. We live in a time mm. where uh, mainstream media, where technocracy, where all these people try to push us into being alone, without roots, glued to the screen of our, of our computers. Uh, the family is the ultimate antidote to all of these ideas. This is the place where you really learn what life is about, and especially if you grow up with many siblings. Yeah, well, and on the practical side of this, and again, I love, you know, these principles, and you outlined many of them in your book, but they're Catholic principles. These are really the foundations of any free people, because without having children, you really don't have any stakes in the game. You really don't have any skin in the game. And so it's all about you and what you can get out of the government and out of society. Exactly. Whereas if you have a family, you're building something for the future. And that, I believe, is really... The, the missing link here in America and in many of these Western democracies, they are suffering from the death of the family. And unless you revive that, it's, it's, it's party over. Uh, another rule is be Catholic and practice your faith. Now, curiously, you quote Henry Kissinger in the book, <laughs> uh, in his book Diplomacy, where he contrasts your ancestor, Ferdinand II, and the French Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs, Cardinal Richelieu, during the Reformation. Richelieu, although a Catholic cardinal believed everything, including the Church, should be subordinate to the state, 
and could not understand why Ferdinand was unwilling to make concessions about faith. There's a very telling quote that shows his motivation. I'll put it on the screen. Non-Catholics think me unfeeling for banning heresy, but I love them rather than I hate them. If I didn't love them, I would freely leave them in their error. You're right that Austria and the Habsburg family are still largely Catholic today because Ferdinand II did not yield to politics. Why is it so important today for Catholics to practice their faith and not yield to politics? Wow, that's, yes, that's, I think, one of the central points. I think it was more or less after the time of John F. Kennedy, after his famous speech before his election, where he more or less gave the message, mm. my Catholic faith will not influence my political decisions, that um, being a Catholic and showing your faith in politics, at least in Europe, went out of fashion. Uh, the idea is if I'm neutral, if I'm not a religious person, and if nobody knows what, what I believe, then more people will vote for me. And I think this is wrong. I think a politician should have a faith, because if I know what your faith is, I know what I can hold you accountable for. And also, if somebody believes in God and believes in a final judgment where we, he will have to render accountability to God, then he will, in my books, be less tempted to be corrupt and to do ter terrible things in political positions. So I, I strongly encourage people, if they're uh, Catholic, to go into politics and to live their faith and to show their faith. And uh, we, 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 yeah. we, have, we have forgotten about this. Well, I agree with you. I think the first mark of an inauthentic politician is one who says, you know, I have these deeply held beliefs that I'm going to put aside so I can serve you. <laughs> this is madness. But that is exactly what so many of these politicians have done in the past and continue to do to this present day and their major heads of state. I won't have to name them because you know who they are. Uh, Blessed Karl, the emperor of Austria, king of Hungary, Really, one of your well, most well-known ancestors, um, he is going to be—he's on the road to canonization. He was a devout Catholic, devout family man and peacemaker. What impact has his legacy had on not only the Habsburgs, but on you personally? Huh, that's a good question. On the Habsburgs, he's the most popular Habsburg in my entire family, among the young ones. Uh, by the way, also in the United States. And if you think about it, this man who was only emperor for one and a half years, who lost a wow. war, who lost the empire, who went into exile and who died miserably in exile, this, this man who was, for all reasons of the world, a loser, uh, this man that most people don't even know about, he's the most important, and for us Habsburgs, most impressive of our, of our emperors. And this is because he was truly authentic a Christian in all what he did. He was a Christian um, in his vocation as a Christian. He really, really was heroic in his, in his striving for sanctity. He was a Christian in his love for his wife and his children. He had eight wonderful children with her. And he was a Christian, as one of my nieces used to say, in his job, which happened to be emperor. His Christian and his Catholic faith really influenced his social politics. And uh, one thing he did, and this is something that I, that I think a lot about, is he offered his life for his people. When he was in exile, he told God, especially when he lay dying, all his suffering he gave for his people, for the people who had just hmm. sent him into exile. Now, I, I wish that we could inspire a few politicians to be that much in love with their country that they would offer up their suffering in disease and even their lives for their people. This is, this is an incredible example by Blessed Carol. So he's our great hero.
Mm, amazing. Uh, what's been the importance of the Catholic faith uh, in the Habsburg family historically? And how does that carry on today in, uh, among your relatives and yourself? One of the points of my book is definitely that I want to show that there were ups and downs in the Habsburg Catholic faith. Mm -hmm. While they all were Catholic and baptized Catholics, yeah. um, not all of them were devout Catholics. And you can tell, yeah. unfortunately, one of the moments where the emperors weren't absolutely devout Catholics was during the Reformation. So the Habsburg emperors were, so to speak, weak source uh, during the decades after the Reformation. Uh, but thank God, in that time, other members of the family shone like, like a light, really, in the, in the Austrian lands. So that was that. And the Habsburgs are still Catholic. I always say one difficult time was the 19th century. The last, the last priestly vocation in the Habsburg family was around 1800. And the next priestly wow. vocation in the Habsburg family then was around the year 2000. It was my brother who became a priest. <laughs> so for 200 years, we didn't have any priestly vocation in a family with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of young men born. So you must ask yourself, mm. okay, now nowadays we're back to three priestly vocations and, uh, and lots of young Habsburgs praying the rosary, going to mass. So um, we're going to be around a long time and we're going to be Catholic. You dedicate a chapter to subsidiarity in the book. It's entitled, Believe in the Empire and Subsidiarity. And you write that, quote, subsidiarity has been a bedrock principle of Catholic social teaching for millennia. God gave each of us an intellect and a free will in order that we should take proper responsibility for our actions according to our station in life. But in addition to good theology, subsidiarity is simply sensible and politically efficient policy. When an institution is closer to a problem, it's usually best equipped to handle it. Now, you point out that we are living in a time where there's a push to uh, offshore all of responsibility and policy upstairs and away from the people. Uh, why have we lost this principle of subsidiarity, and what's the danger in losing it? Subsidiarity is the idea that you let the lower level handle what the lower level can handle, and the higher you go up, the less power um, is there. And this is um, the America is built on that principle. America is uh, our United States, and the states should be strong. Even stronger should be the township, and of course the family should be the strongest on the lowest level. The Habsburg uh, Empire was built up the same way, with an incredible respect for every single country within that empire, and less less power was held on higher levels, the better it was. Now we seem to live in a time where decisions seem to be taken on such a high level and so far removed from democratic legitimation that I believe rediscovering the principle of subsidiarity is the absolute antidote to globalism, is the absolute antidote to the feeling that we sometimes have that things are being decided far away from our local level. And that is not good because we are human beings. We live for the local level. Democracy is strongest on the local mm -hmm. level. And therefore, we should try to rediscover this. And it's one of the messages of the book um, in my chapter on empire and subsidiarity. Mm. Well, you, you love, uh, when I watched the papal visit, you could see the community. Uh, of the Hungarian people coming together and the various groups that came out to see the Holy Father. Um, and, and look, I, I live in New Orleans. I'm here in Nashville now. The community here is so vibrant. 
um, that's an important part, certainly, of American life, but it should predominate throughout the West, and it is dying. Uh, e even in polls, you see young people, not only are they saying they don't want to have children and get married, but they don't want to live in a community. They don't care about community. That, to me, is the death of a unified people, and certainly a democratic, free, liberty-loving people. That's over. Um, Hungary is considered by many nations, uh, Edward, as especially those that are part of the European Union, to be a rebel country of sorts. And they're accused of being too nationalistic, uh, perhaps believing too much in subsidiarity. How would you <laughs> respond to that? I would respond with uh, something that our Prime Minister Viktor Orban said in a speech in Italy after he visited the Pope. Um, he said, uh, we're often accused by uh, Brussels that we don't stand for European values anymore. For instance, when we when we make a law that protects our minor kids from LGBT indoctrination in Hungary. Um, we don't stand for European values anymore. And he says, if Adenauer, uh, Schumann and de Gasperi, the founders of the European Union, would come back today, where would they find European values? In Brussels or in Central yeah. Europe? So what Hungary says yeah. is, we stand for these values. You, west of us, seem to have abandoned a few of them, but we can rediscover them. Mm. While writing the book, you, you researched a great number of your family members. I mean, we've talked about a few of them. Who were you most surprised and inspired by? Wow. Oh, yes. Well, I would say Archduchess um, Magdalena. Uh, I managed in, you know, I did on Twitter, I did a, a championship of the Habsburgs, and uh, people voted yeah, for their favorite Habsburgs. I managed to get her into the second round. It wasn't bad for a for an unknown <laughs> archduchess of the 16th century. Um, what she did was incredible. Mm -hmm. She was a daughter of the emperor um, uh, Ferdinand I, and uh, he wanted to marry her off, but she wanted to become a nun. And he said, no way, I'm going to marry you off. I'm, a famous painting was made of her by Archimboldo, the famous painter. And, um, and then she, she insisted, with the help of her confessor, who was St. Peter Canisius. And she managed to convince her father that she was, uh, that she could found a monastery. And she founded a monastery with two of her sisters, lots of vocations. But her great hour came in the time of Counter-Reformation, when the, uh, the nuncio from Rome came, and he knew he couldn't go to the emperor, because, as I told you before, the emperor was weak source. So he went to yeah. Hall in Tyrol, to that monastery. He spoke with Magdalena. Magdalena brought him together with two of her brothers in other parts of Austria, and with her sister in Bavaria, who was the Duchess of Bavaria. And together they made a meeting in 1579, and together they made a, a, a bullet list how to take back Austria for the Catholic faith. And that list you can still wow. find online. It's fantastic. And that was just because wow. she followed her vocation. She was, she was a wonderful woman. She's the only other venerable we have in the family. We have one blessed and mm. one venerable. So my, my money is on uh, Magdalena of Austria. <laughs> okay. We will leave it there. Love the book, The Habsburg Way, Seven Rules for Turbulent Times, uh, by Archduke of Austria, Edward Habsburg, and uh, Hungary's ambassador to the Holy See. It's available now at bookstores everywhere and online. Edward Habsburg, thank you for being here. Thank you, Raymond. It was a joy talking to you. She is the anchor of Fox News Sunday, chief legal correspondent, and host of Live in the Bream podcast, as well as a best-selling author. Her new book, The Love Stories of the Bible Speak, Biblical Lessons on Romance, Friendship, and Faith, 
is in bookstores now. Please welcome back to the program my pal Shannon Bream. I'm delighted you're here. Now, we had a little conversation when you first launched the book, and I'm glad we can go a little deeper. This is your third book, mm -hmm. I, I, Telling Stories of the Bible. The first two were concentrated on women of the Bible mm -hmm. primarily. Why did you decide that love and love stories would be your focus? So many of these earlier stories that we told, they did have a love component to them, and some of them are really beautiful. You know, whether you look at the original design for Adam and Eve and man and woman and what God had said about them, sometimes I think it gets lost in the shuffle. People think, oh, the Bible's an old, oppressive book, and it doesn't really, it has outdated notions about marriage. But man, it's full of really good advice. And if you go back to what God actually said mm. about marriage, it was a very positive thing, and men and women in part partnership and really being each other's best supporters and with the help of God's unconditional love to guide us and how we're supposed to love. Yeah. I, I, I love the way you intro the book. I mean, this is really about God's love for us. That's part of the romance that and love that you're getting at here as well. In, in the intro, you write this. It's a quote from St. Paul. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this is so difficult for many of us mm -hmm. to do, but how do these stories help illustrate not only God's love for us, mm -hmm. but how we're called to love one another? Yeah. What, what surprised you as you saw? Because sometimes when you frame things differently, mm -hmm suddenly parts of the story mm -hmm. stand out that might not have before. Yeah, over and over in the New Testament, Christ is asked about how do you sum up the law, and it always goes back to that about loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and spirit, but love your neighbor as yourself. And I checked, there are not any exceptions. Um, sometimes the mo sometimes we're the difficult person to love, but mm -hmm. often we have to deal with people like that in our lives. It could be a coworker, it could be a family member, it could be a neighbor, whatever it is, God didn't say like, oh, you get a pass for them. He says, you have to love them the way you love yourself, and we're all born inherently selfish. I think we have to fight against that. But think about how you want all the best things for yourself. And we're, we're called to be humble and to really look out for the good of other people. Shannon, what popped out at me as I read this, first of all, your spirit is throughout the book. And I know your love of the scriptures. I know this is not just a curiosity for you. Mm -hmm. It's a part of your life. How did that inform the stories you decided to choose here. I mean, you, you open with the Song of Solomon. Now, this is oh, one. Boy. We don't hear this one <laughs> from the pulpit too often. Right. Or if you hear it, it's in little tiny right. bits and pieces. When you read, it forced me to go back and read the right. whole thing when I encountered this chapter. I mean, this is pretty hot stuff. But what does it say about the nature of married love? Well, that God is not surprised about our passion for each other or that we would have desire for each other. That's how he created us. Mm -hmm. And and I feel like he's endorsing it all throughout the Bible, but really by including this book, it's clear that he wants us to nurture the romance in our lives. And we look at these two people who are yearning to be together, but they want to do this the right way within marriage, and they're working to all those things. But I just love the language is mm -hmm. so flowery about your teeth like goats and your arms like bands of gold. I mean, there's a reason this is included, and and I always think, gosh, I gotta up my game on these lunchbox notes and that kind of stuff. I can't just be have a great day, XO. Maybe <laughs> I go. should get some inspiration. Well, and, and that runs to the heart of something that you know we were talking about the book before. Something I saw is the practical aspect of this book. Mm -hmm. It's not just a Bible study because some mm -hmm. people will say, oh, that's a nice thing. That's part of my meditative life. It also is a practical application. Mm -hmm. There are practical lessons that you kind of draw out of these stories that we can use in our own lives. Tell me about the Song of Solomon, particularly that, that notion of being the prime support mm -hmm. for the one you love. Yeah, I don't want anyone else to be my husband's number one fan or number one cheerleader. We really make it a goal to be that for each other. But that means, too, you may feel funny sometimes maybe with the more flowery language, but why not stop and appreciate them? Remember falling in love with them for the first time and tell them what you think is so great about them. I think 
that's one of the best ways to nurture a marriage. And like I said, I don't want anyone to ever have first place. I want my husband always to know that there's nobody else who has his back the way I do. Mm. Now, now, there's another story that you probably don't want to go around mimicking, and that is Samson and Delilah. Oh, boy. Who, yeah, who figure here. Why include them? I mean, this <laughs> is the ultimate dysfunctional relationship. Yeah. Why did we need to know about Samson and Delilah? You know Delilah? what? In all the books I've done, I include the flawed, messed-up relationships and individuals because that's all of us. I mean, none of us are without sin. Christ is the only one in the Bible and our Heavenly Father. And so you think about that and think, okay, I want to make sure that people know, like, no matter matter what's gone wrong in your life, whether it's circumstances that have come to you or you've made bad decisions, we mm -hmm. all do. It's okay. God can work through those. And even at the end of Samson's story, as much as he messed up, he called on God one last time and God was faithful. He was always there yeah. and came back to honor Samson when Samson humbled himself and asked for God's help. Mm, yeah, no, that, that, the lead up to that though is, <laughs> yikes. <laughs> it was a mess. It's a mess to say mm -hmm. the least. Yeah. Uh, real high housewives of Judea. <laughs> exactly. In, in a recent op-ed you wrote, uh, at Fox News, you talk about the importance of friendship and the love between friends, uh, which you also include in the book. And you point out that recent studies show that men are suffering from a friendship recession. According to the Survey Center on American Life, the percentage of men with at least six close friends fell by half since 1990, from 55% to 27%. The study also found the percentage of men with any close friends jumped 3% or without any jumped from 3% to 15%, a five-fold increase. What did that tell you, and why did you decide to include friends mm -hmm. as part of these love stories in the Bible? I think we're created to be in community, and those numbers are so sad to me and yeah. really kind of shocking. And I talked to a number of pastors and priests about that number and about friendships and why we aren't better about those in modern society. And they said, you know, we have not placed a value on them like we used to. And we used to be in our communities and know our neighbors and know people at the Elks Lodge or at the right. Boy Scout troop or in our churches. And we've, we've let some of our houses of worship go. People aren't gathering there in the same ways. So I thought, listen, Jonathan and David, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, mm. people who stood together through very difficult circumstances, we all want those kinds of friends, but it means we have to be those kinds of friends. Yeah. And I want to talk for a minute. You include the story of Job and mm -hmm. his friends. Mm -hmm. Why that story? Now, now they came to, to comfort him, mm -hmm. really, after his life, you know, is turned upside down. Mm -hmm. What was the lesson there, and why include that particular story? Man, such difficult, horrible suffering that we're all going to suffer, but it's hard to imagine suffering as much as Job did. His friends initially got it right. They showed up for seven days. Nobody said anything. They sat there in sorrow together, which was a beautiful thing. And I think sometimes we worry about saying the wrong thing when somebody's grieving, but even just to show up, they'll remember your presence. And sometimes that's what we need more than anything. But they got off on a tangent when they tried to accuse him of harboring sin or doing something wrong. And God comes thundering back in defense of Job at the end saying, you've gotten it wrong. This is my faithful servant and I'm here to defend him. So as friends, sometimes we get it wrong, but if we're there and we're trying to sit in the grief together, that's at least the greatest gift that we can give to someone. Mm. Talk, talk for a moment because it struck me. Um, and I, I look, I've always seen the parallels between Adam and Eve and, of course, you know, the Blessed Mother and, and Joseph and, and Blessed Mother and Jesus, that, that they become the new Adam, the new Eve. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about that and 
why, because you, you pit the two stories, if you will, against each other, and it enlightens them in a new way. Yeah, so Adam and Eve were the beginning of humanity, and gosh, God had an ideal situation for them in their relationship, the physical environment they had, all of those things. And then there were so many tragedies, sin and other losses that came to them. But we see, you know, with Mary and with Joseph, they come together as the new birth, bringing the Messiah into the world. And it's a new opportunity. He's the new Adam. So, you know, mm -hmm. he's going to be the sacrifice that covers for all the mistakes that Adam made. That's one person who took us down the wrong path. But with Christ emerging and coming, he's the one person that will then fully God, fully man, save us from our sins and the mistakes of the Garden of the Eden. Yeah. And Esther is included mm -hmm. here as well, who you've talked about yes. before. Esther is obviously a big hero for Shannon. She Brady. is. She, she's, she runs throughout all of these books, mm -hmm. really. Um, but here you talk about her, her particular, um, her friendship. And, uh, I mean, you have a woman who's essentially, <laughs> she's in a beauty competition. Right. You know, to win her husband. On steroids. Yeah, it's like, you know, the bachelorette biblical times. Um, what's the lesson here? I mean, these are, these are two women who are friends. Mm -hmm. uh, sorry, these are this, this is Esther and... and uh, Xerxes. Yes. I mean, the king who, when it starts out, he's this impetuous, uh, not very nice guy. No. So he does have this crazy beauty pageant, and Esther ends up catching his eye. She has great honor. He chooses her to be his new wife, and we see him change. So we know that he was smitten with her. We don't know her side of the story. She also fell in love with him. But we know that when she comes to him for help, after God's divinely placed her where she was, that he offers her anything up to the half of his kingdom, which in those days would be unthinkable for a woman. So we see him really soften. And the, I, the lesson I took from it is that, listen, you may be in a marriage with a less than ideal spouse, the way it came together may be less than ideal, but God can still work through you. When you're faithful to him, that's a witness to your spouse. And often their hearts soften through the process. Yeah, I love the practicality that you draw mm -hmm. out of these stories, because I think they were meant to they weren't meant to be museum pieces right. they were meant to be poured into your own life and then lived anew and you do that mm -hmm. is there any chapter here that you almost didn't include hmm. you know what was really hard to narrow down for Paul he had so many different friendships and I thought uh, oh my goodness should these all be different chapters so we not try to tackle Paul he had so many special friendships along the way that we really had a hard time cutting that one down to what yeah. we did, but he's woven all throughout the New Testament and shows us how this community of believers, many of them under threat of martyrdom, and they yeah. suffered that, um, they bound together, and they're the early church. They're how it came together. Tell me about the relationship that almost didn't make it into yeah. this book. Yeah, Hosea and Gomer is a really tricky one because the book of Hosea is super depressing. It was not <laughs> joyful. He was a prophet, and the people didn't want to hear from the prophets. Yep. They had pulled away from God. They weren't listening to him. And God tells Hosea, you're going to go marry this woman of sort of ill repute. You're going to marry yep. Gomer. She was not a faithful wife. They had a couple kids, and their names are crazy. You know, what the Lord told them to name them, like, you are, I do not love you. You are not my people. Um, but even though Gomer is unfaithful and runs away with other men and gives credit to her lovers for the gifts mm -hmm. in her life, even though Hosea was the one providing and taking yeah. care for her, it's this picture of God trying to talk to Israel to say, I will always come after you and redeem you. So Hosea, it's a very harsh book, but Hosea's lesson is beautiful in that he goes and redeems Gomer. And he says, you're going to come home with me. I'm going to pay the price to get you out of these debts and slavery and whatever trouble you've gotten yourself mm. into. I'm not just going to bring you home, though. We're going to love each other. This is going to be a real marriage. Mm. And I think God so often talks to us that way that you make mistakes, you run away, you chase other things. I'm always going to be coming after you to redeem you. Mm. No, it's a beautiful story. I mean, mm -hmm. it's not a not a sweet one, mm -hmm. but it ends well. Important. So that's what we have mm -hmm. to focus on. You dedicate the book to your husband, Sheldon, of mm -hmm. 27 years. Yes. Um, give me a sense of 
how the Bible and your faith have held you together. Now, you've written about this. In your first book, you wrote about the many trials. Both of you went through physical, real hardships and how your faith carried you through. Yeah, you know when you make your vows before God and in the church and before your friends and family, um, He seals that together, I think, in a very special way. And we know, we say all the time, we are not perfect. Yeah. But we're perfect for each other. We believe God put us together. And so we're going to have flaws. We're going to have fights. We're going to have unexpected tragedies. But when you have that to lean on, it makes me wonder how people do marriage without it or do life without it. And there are times we have to be humble. We pray together every night and read from the Word together every night. And I think it's just a great bond for us to say, even if we had a rough day or one of us was, you know, a little antsy and unkind to the other, we're always going to come back to that place where there's something greater that binds us together. What are people telling you about this book? I know you've been, you've done book mm -hmm. signings. I know you've been doing a ton of media. Mm -hmm. What are they telling you about the differences? Because look, mm -hmm. there are a lot of medita meditative mm -hmm. books. There are a lot of biblical uh, studies out there. Why do you think this one has resonated? And boy, has it resonated. New York Times list over and over and over yes. again. Um, you know what I love is that I have so many couples telling me they're doing this book together. And that's not something I heard from the earlier books. They were more focused on women's Bible studies and yep. those kinds of things. Although I've had men's groups tell me they've done them too. But this one I love that people are reading through together and mm -hmm. hopefully strengthening their relationship and being inspired and renewed um, by what God tells us about our relationships and how beautiful they really can be. Okay, what's next? Not, mm. I hope not like, you know, great meals of the Bible <laughs> speak or, but that could be a good one. We talked about manna. Yeah, manna. You know, there's some other good ones that we could have fish, in there. Fish, Jesus cooked the fish exactly. for the apostles. Exactly, feeding 5,000. Feeding fi yeah, look, there are a lot of options. Events, there are. I'm giving um, you the next book. And okay. this could have a culinary I, I crossover Credits and a Fox Nation special. Although I can't, I can't cook, so I would be quickly exposed. <laughs> Sheldon can um, do the cooking. Sheldon is an you amazing cook. He's an amazing <laughs> cook among, among all of his other great um, qualities. I am going to try a fiction book that really? is um, definitely got a thread of faith through it, but it's one of those things that I woke up and it came to me. And I felt like, okay, Lord, you've dropped this in my lap. Help me to steward it. I've already told you I'm coming to you for pointers because I've not written fiction. You do it so beautifully. Yeah. And I'm going to pick your brain on how to do that. But I, I, there's a message there that I, I want to I am happy share. to help anytime, and I'll bring my next Bible study to you. The Love Stories of the Bible Speak Biblical Lessons on Romance, Friendship, and Faith is available at bookstores everywhere and online. That is all the time we have for now. Be sure to catch us next week. Until then, we will be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, thank you for joining me. I'm Raymond Arroyo. Bye now.